anybody who knows me well knows that I love to fly. I really, like, and I, that's not just a passing comment. Like, it's a thing for me. I really enjoy getting on an airplane and flying somewhere, so much so that it's one of the parts of the trip that I look forward to. If I'm going to a conference or something, I'm looking forward to the conference, but I'm also looking forward to flying somewhere, you know? And um, I, I just, I have a thing about enjoying that, but I, I hit kind of an existential crisis not too long ago where I had to kind of think that through because, and you should, you should know, forgive me for breaking a sentence, I typically have uh, very, very good luck with flights. Like I, generally speaking, just have no issues with cancellations and delays and so forth. For the most part, I've had a very easy go of it. I know it's not fair, but that's been the way that it's, that it's been. But now whatever curtain God was keeping all that away from me with, he has now opened wide open and it is all just coming right down on top of me, you know? Because the last several trips I've taken, it's just been merciless, all the problems and issues. And uh, so I was uh, in California and I was at a conference and uh, it was the second to last day, and I got a phone call, and it was from the airlines, and they were letting me know that my flight home had been canceled, uh, and that I needed to call them to, to, you know, perhaps get another flight, and I thought, yeah, <laughs> you know, so I called them, and, and, and they said, well, you know, we're, we're, we're very booked up, and I thought, yes, you were booked up, I had a ticket, I was going someplace, but they said, we're very booked up, and so we can't, you know, the only way we're going to be able to get you home is if you get to the airport right now. Can you get to the airport right now and we'll, we'll get you on a flight that has three legs. You should never get on a flight that has three legs. Because if the flight has three legs, that means there are two layovers. And that in and of itself is a problem. But they said, they said you know, we can get you from, and I, I can't remember where I was. I, I think I was in San Diego. They're like, we can get you from there to Wichita in about 13 and a half hours. And I thought, that just doesn't seem right. You know, but anyhow, so I took him up on. It. I mean, it was my one option, and I needed to be home. So I left the conference a day early. I wasn't very happy about that, and I drove to the airport, and and um, they got me on the on on the flight, and I end up in LAX late at night. Which, by the way, I learned something new. This is more than you want to know, but you know, when you go to the gate and you're getting you know you're getting ready for your flight and so forth, and they have the little counter there with the computer where they type really fast and never make eye contact with you. Um, <laughs> There's like a cabinet right behind there. And I always wondered, what do they keep in the cabinet? And I figured it out. It's cots, right? So if you happen to be unfortunate enough to be needing to spend the night in the airport, they break out these little uncomfortable cots for you to sleep on. And you have not lived until you've spent the night in LAX airport uh, on, a, on a cot. I'll tell you, it's a, it's a great experience, but that's a talk for another day. But in any case, so I'm, I'm, I'm tired, I'm sleepy. I'm, I'm, I've spent the night in Los Angeles International Airport. And uh, I'm not happy. They put me in the back of the plane. And I, I fly coach, but I try to get as close to the middle of the plane as I possibly can because I do not like being stuck in the back of the plane. But because I was not supposed to be on this plane anyway, they put me in the very back. And I'm sitting next to someone who just does not understand the rules of personal space. And part of my personal creed is that I truly do believe in personal space, and I really need the people around me to believe in it, but this person was just violating all of those concepts, and so I'm already in kind of a cranky mood, and the lady, the, 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 the flight attendant, is coming down the aisle, and she says, hey, you know, because we've been having issues with getting these flights out and everything, uh, you know, we didn't get the snack cart loaded, so I know this is a snack flight, but there's not going to be any snack on this flight, and I guess that was just kind of like the last straw. Because I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, all right, so I missed the last day of the conference. 
I'm having to go through three flights. You're taking me someplace not even close to where I need to be to get home so that then you can get me someplace a little closer to home so that then you can finally get me home. And I'm sitting next to somebody that I just really am trying to pray grace over even though I don't like them very much. And then you come over here and the only thing I have to look forward to in my next four hours of my life is a little tiny bag of peanuts and you're not even gonna give me the little tiny bag of peanuts, right? And this is where I hit my existential crisis because I'm a person who goes around telling people that I love to fly. And I had to ask myself, why? <laughs> you know? And then it dawned on me, I don't love to fly for the experience. It's not that I love getting crammed into a small, getting crammed to a small space in an aircraft or running through an airport trying to make my connecting flight. I like flying because of what it does for me. For, for, for a few short hours, I'm kind of superhuman. For, because while I'm on that airplane, I get to skip all of the obstacles that are between me and where it is that I'm trying to go. I get to go farther faster than I would if I wasn't in an airplane. And it's, it's as though for that time that I'm flying in that airplane, the limitations that I'm used to, I don't have to deal with. I, I, just being, I know this is just super basic, but... I'm, I'm used to the fact that if I'm on the ground and I encounter a mountain, I gotta climb up it and climb down it, or I gotta go around it. Or if I run into a body of water, I've either gotta have a boat or some excellent swimming skills, right? I get that, that if I'm needing to get from Wichita, Kansas to Michigan, that's gonna be a long car trip. See, my, I, I love to fly. My dad, on the other hand, does not like to fly. And when I was growing up, my dad didn't fly at all. And my dad spoke all over the country. And so we had a little Volvo 240DL, which is a little bathtub of a car. And my, um, we drove all over the country in that thing. So I, I understand, I'm, I'm counting the hours in my head as we're flying to my destination, how long it would take to get there by, by car. I don't do road trips, by the way. If you're a road trip person, I'll pray for you. Um, <laughs> So I'm thankful to have the ability to skip over what's between me and my destination and to get farther faster. Now, you know that in this series, we're not really spending a lot of time talking about airplanes and aircraft. We're, we're kind of making a comparison to some concepts about real life. And I want to talk to you about something called transcendence, right? Transcendence, is, it's, a, it's a combination of, of two words. It's a Latin prefix and a French word. Uh, the Latin prefix is trans, which means across. And the French word, which I didn't take French, so if you, if you know French, please forgive me for my mispronunciation. The French word is sandir, which means to climb or to ascend. So what it means is to climb across or to ascend across or literally to skip. So transcendence means being able to skip or to climb across or to climb over the normal boundaries or the normal barriers that we might experience in life. And so that's what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about getting on, a, on an airplane and skipping obstacles. I want to talk about how do we experience transcendent life? How do we experience that takeoff so that we can get over the barriers and obstacles that other people have to grapple with? Because frankly, I see a lot of folks struggling and grappling with things that if there is any possible way I can skip that, I would like to. If there's any possible way I could skip an emotional crisis, I would like to. If there's any way I could skip family trouble or marriage trouble, I'd like to. If there's any way that I could skip an occupational crisis or occupational problem, I would like to. So God is gonna give us some instructions on how we can experience transcendent life. And let's just face it, if we're gonna have transcendent life, we're gonna have to be tapped into something bigger than ourselves, right? That's the nature of transcendence. The whole purpose 
of transcendence is to be able to do better than you can do normally. And to do that, we got to tap into something bigger than us. I mean, I cannot fly unless I'm in an airplane, which is something that I'm aware of. The hotel person at the last place I was at didn't seem to be, because I went, this was in the California, and I had to go get to the airport, and I knew that the hotel was very close to the airport, so I went and asked the guy for directions. The reason I asked the guy for directions is because I have no sense of directions. I get lost anywhere, and I need my GPS. I gotta have a woman in the car telling me which way to go, either the GPS or my wife. If both of them are in the car, then it gets a little tense, but uh, gotta figure out who to listen to. Um, but, so I go to the, I figure the, this guy at the hotel, he can tell me how to get where I need to go. And, and uh, I, I said to him, could you, could you give me directions to the, uh, to the airport? And he said, well, as the crow flies, it, and I, my, my mind just paused as I heard him say that because I thought, what do I look like to you? You know? And, 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 and then I just got facetious with him. And yes, this is what my wife has to deal with. I said, all right, you're going to probably need to back up. I think I'm going to need to get a running start here. You know? Because I can't fly without an airplane. The reason I like airplanes, it lets me tap into the ability to get over obstacles. So the reason that we're talking uh, about this is because God gives us the ability to tap into his power and his source. Remember that God himself is the, he, he is supernatural. He is transcendent. He is over that which we would normally experience in life. So we, we, we want to know how to tap into that and experience that in our everyday. So we're, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus uh, preaching about kingdom living. Don't let the term kingdom living get you lost in the weeds. If you have a lot of religious tradition or religious background, you may have heard people use that term a lot and, and it might have gotten kind of weird. Just understand that kingdom living is talking about living under the reality of following Jesus. That's what it's all about. See, I'm, I'm an American, so that means that uh, I'm, I experience American living, American life. I follow the rules and the laws that were set up by American authorities. I understand that I live in American structure and American culture. Uh, and so I'm concerned with how to move forward or how to, how to be successful in American life. Um, but for a, for a God follower, there's another wrinkle, right? Because above, and above our earthly home and our earthly authorities, we also live in a heavenly reality because we believe that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, yes? So that means that in order to live successfully, given that truth that we've tapped into, it means that our reality is shaped by the fact that we are under God's authority and we need to understand God's rules and we need to understand God's structure and we need to understand how God says a person gets gets ahead in, in, in his world, not in the world that we live in, but how, how it works as far as God's concerned. So the Sermon on the Mount, that's why the Sermon on the Mount is so valuable. Jesus is going to say, look, I'm going to tell you how it works if you're concerned with being in, in, in God's kingdom. All right, so, uh, and by the way, let's take a quick break because I want to talk for a second about the fact that God does give us instructions. Because that kind of uh, can, can cause people to bristle every once in a while. I, I'm not trying to keep everything on airplanes, but it just happened to be how it was. I was on an airplane once on a trip, and, and I was sitting next to this guy, and this guy and I were having a conversation, and he asked me what I did for a living. And uh, that's always an interesting discussion on an airplane. And I said, well, I'm a pastor, you know. And his face kind of got, you know, dark. And he said, well, I don't really, um, I don't really go in for that religion stuff, you know. And I said, oh, did you have a bad experience with it? And he said, well... No, it's not really that. He said, I just don't appreciate somebody telling me what I can and can't do. He's like, whether it's, the, you know, whether it's God or the government, and I really appreciated him love, you know, putting God and the government in the same cubbyhole there. Um, but, 
he said, I just don't, I don't like somebody telling me what to do. And he's like, the Bible's just a big book of do's and don'ts. And, and then I saw him kind of pause and he, say, he said, I guess you're going to argue with me on that, aren't you? And I said, no, you got it about right. I'm like, the Bible's, Bible has tons of do's and don'ts in it. It is a book in many ways of do's and don'ts. And so is the manual for my digital camera. You know, Nikon figured that I might want to know how to best use this camera. So they put together a, a, a very tediously long document that they stuck in the box for the purpose of helping me understand how to best use that camera. The reason that they have the authority and the ability to do that is because they designed the camera and they know how it's best designed to work. I don't have to read that book. Nobody's holding a gun to my head saying, you have to read the manual to this camera. The reason that it is in there is so that if I want to get the most out of it, I can use that resource. I cannot use the resource, but then I wouldn't get the most out of the camera. See, that's the way that it works. And I'm, I, ha I hold no resentment towards Nikon. I wrote them no hate mail. I did not tell them, how dare you meddle in my life by telling me how to operate this camera. I appreciate that they're, that they're trying to help me. And that's, that's why it's okay for Jesus, it's okay for God to give us instructions because God is the designer of all human life and the designer of the planet on which we live. And God says, I want you to know how to live successfully. It makes sense to me. That is why God gave us a book of do's and don'ts. And we probably ought to pay attention to them because if you're anything like me, you want to experience transcendence. And the only way that's going to happen is if we're willing to pay attention to God's instructions. So that's what we're talking about, right? That's what the series is about. So attitudes, have, that's a word we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks, right? We've been talking about our attitudes and how important it is. And, and Jesus is really focused on this because, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, more about this in a second, but the religious culture had, had started to get this weird idea that your attitude didn't matter, just the actions. So it wasn't a matter of what was going on in your mind and your heart. It was more a matter of what did you do or what did you not do. Um, and so, you know, the religious leaders, they had these check boxes of all the things that you had to do to be right with God and all the things that you shouldn't do if you wanted to be right with God. And, and so Jesus is having to come and, and deal with that a little bit to say it's not just the actions, it's the attitudes that lead to those actions. And today we're going to talk about one in specific, and that's anger. And, and, and by the way, before... Before we even get there, uh, I told you what I love about flying. Can I tell you what I do not love about flying? And that's when somebody in a uniform, uh, an, an, air, an, an airline uh, uniform, gets on the PA system and lets us know that we will not be taking off. I do not love that. Uh, it has the potential to make me a little angry. Uh, and, you know, there's all kinds of, of reasons why, you know, they've canceled the flight, the flight's delayed, there's a problem with the aircraft. That one always kind of worries me a little bit. Um, you know, or it's even worse. I'll tell you what's even worse. What's worse is when you find out that you are the only one who will not be taking off, right? That's happened to me before where they call you up to the little, you know, the, the podium there. And you know, say, Mr. Hoover, uh, we overbooked this flight. And so we're going to need to just bump you to the next one. Now, that always begs the question, how fluid are the seats on these airplanes anyhow? You know, I mean, couldn't you just get on the airplane and count the chairs and know how many people can be on that? What, what is this business of overbooking anyway? I need to get off that soapbox because I could be on that for a while. Um, but when you find out you're the only person who's going to be take, not taking off, that's really a bummer. But there's one other reason why you might not get to take off, and that's if you happen to find yourself on the no-fly list, right? I know next to nothing about the no-fly list, so I consulted the authority of our generation, uh, Google, 
and <laughs> learned that this list exists so that if there's a, a problem and the, the, the authorities feel like there's an issue with this individual and that issue needs to be resolved or dealt with or handled before this person should be allowed to travel, it flags them so that, um, so that they aren't allowed to get on the airplane and take off. So in my mind's eye, and that kind of had a nightmare that involved me that was sort of like this, but in my mind's eye, I have this kind of picture of a person showing up to fly. They got their bags packed and everything's all ready to go, but they find out that they're on the no-fly list. That would be a big fat bummer, you know, when you're getting ready to travel. But again, we're going back to the Bible. This is not so much about traveling as it is what God's going to teach us about life. Did you know that God has a no-fly list? That, that, That a person could approach God for the sake of trying to experience transcendence, for the sake of trying to tap into God's power and his supernatural abilities, for the sake of trying to get close to God, and yet God could tell that person, right now you can't take off. I want to take you to a passage that talks about this. This is Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23. Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, so this is at church, this is at the temple, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Jesus is saying, leave the church. You come, you come to church, you bring an offering, but you remember when you get there that there's this rift, there's this disconnect, there's this breakup in this relationship. He said, I want you to press the pause button and leave church. And he says, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Well, we don't have a temple anymore. We have a church, and we don't do the sacrifices thing. So let's try to put this in 21st century, just just to give us an idea of what this looked like. Um, People would come, and they would bring sacrifices to the temple. The temple was a very smelly, noisy place, and they would stand in line with the animal that they were going to sacrifice. And when they would eventually get to the front, they would hand the animal to the priest, and the priest would sacrifice, uh, sacrifice the animal. And so Jesus is saying, suppose you go to the temple. And Jesus is probably speaking now not only to his disciples, but maybe some religious teachers. So they're used to this routine. And he says, suppose you go to the temple, everybody's around you, you know, and, and you wait your turn in the line, and you finally get up to the front of the line, and everybody's looking at you, the priest is looking at you, and everybody behind you is looking at you, and all of a sudden you remember that there's this problem in this relationship. I want you to take the rope and hand it over to the priest and say, would you mind tying up this animal for a minute, because i got to go take care of something. Walk out of the church, go deal with it, and then come back, and then offer the sacrifice. By the way, <clears throat> when uh, there were, if, you, if you're a student of the Old Testament and you, you've studied the sacrificial system and all of that, you know there were some sacrifices that were offered at certain times of the year or for certain purposes. Um, the context makes it clear this was actually just a spontaneous love offering to God. This is a person who brings a sacrifice specifically, not because they were under compulsion to do so, but because they wanted to get close to God. And this is like that person reaching out to God saying, I want to get close to you. I want to worship you. I want to connect with you. And yet, Jesus is saying, it is feasible for that person to be on the no-fly list. As a matter of fact, it's feasible for a person then. Let me just back up and say, sometimes Jesus teaches in hypotheticals. Sometimes Jesus will say, suppose a man had... X, Y, Z, and then we'll start teaching based off this hypothetical. Or sometimes Jesus teaches in parables where he'll tell a story and then there's a point to the story that he's trying to communicate. This is neither a hypothetical nor a parable. This is an instruction, meaning this is likely to happen to someone and Jesus is giving a direct instruction. So keep in mind, Jesus is really communicating. It's feasible for a person to go through the motions of being in church five, 10, a dozen, 15, 50 times and expect somehow to get close to God, but there is something holding that person back. And the reason I say that is because there might be somebody in this room who'd say, you know what, Jonathan, I'm kind of frustrated with God at the moment. 
I feel like I'm doing everything that I know to do. I, I go to church, and I, I feel like I'm praying. I'm reading my Bible. I'm, I feel like I'm checking off all the checkboxes on my spiritual checklist, and yet I don't feel like I'm getting closer to God, and it's really frustrating. Well, Jesus is going to give us some reasons why. We're going to handle, by the way, just one of them this week, but Jesus is going to give us some reasons why that could be happening. And he wants us to clear those up so that we can experience that close life to God and transcendence. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And I want to give you uh, some, some background to talk about um, why a person would end up on the no-fly list and how they can get off. Uh, and so we're going to back up and we're going to look at a couple verses previous to, to what we just read. But before we do, I need, to, I need to give you a little bit of setup because... The verses I'm getting ready to read have sometimes can really caused some confusion and caused some people to really worry about where they stand with God based off of what Jesus is getting ready to say. I don't want you to leave here worried, and I don't want you to leave here confused. So I really want to make sure that hopefully I make this clear and easy to understand. I'm going to go ahead and read the verses, and then we're going to talk about where the confusion might be, and then we're going to really put some wheels on this and make this uh, applicable to our lives. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. So this is backing up a couple verses. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. Everybody's nodding their heads so far. It makes sense to them. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment or be liable to be hauled into court. But I say to you, and now he's going to talk about kingdom living. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, and we don't have a good English equivalent of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is using a specific word. It was a, it, in Greek, it was an epithet. It was a, it was a slang, quasi-curse word used to tell somebody they were worthless. And he says, whoever says that to his brother will be liable to the council or the grand jury. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And you can see why this would cause some stress, potentially, for a believer. Because a believer could read that and go, well, now... I've gotten angry with people before. I've said some things I shouldn't have said. Maybe I even used a curse word when I was upset with somebody. Does that mean then that, that God's saying I should be worried about going to hell? No, not if you're a believer. Not, not if you believe in Jesus Christ because Jesus has very clearly made it payment for everything that you've ever done wrong regardless of what you've said and regardless of what you've done. In order to understand what Jesus is saying there, you have to know who he's talking to. Remember a second ago I said that the religious culture had this sappy, weird idea that supposedly by following their own interpretation of God's rules, they would somehow, someday, be able to present themselves to God and say, God, I deserve to be in your heaven because I've done everything right. I don't know how anybody could have the impression that they've done everything right, but there was this going thought that somehow because they had done enough good things and not done enough bad things, they could present themselves to God and say, I deserve to be in heaven on my own merit. Well, I, I think if you've been around New Spring any length of time, you know that's not what we believe. We believe that, that all of us, pastors included, are imperfect. I mean, I, none, of us can, none of us can be anything close to perfect. And so we need, we need a Savior. We need Jesus because Jesus came to earth and he paid the price for the sins that we've committed past, present, and future so that we can have a relationship with God. So that's clear at this point. But what you have to understand is that Jesus is dealing with people for whom this is not yet clear. And they are still trying to fly it in on their own goodness. And so Jesus is, is talking about the danger of anger, and he's going to talk about two dangers. There's the danger of an eternal destination, and that's for a person who doesn't think that they need a Savior. And then there is the danger of losing our earthly effectiveness, and that could be for anybody. 
So if you're in this room today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't need to be worried about your eternal destination because that is settled, that is secured, and you are sealed by Jesus Christ, you're sealed by, by his blood, and you have a relationship and a future with God. So you don't need to read this passage and go, well, does this mean somehow that I'm going to hell? Because you're not. The Bible's very clear about that. And even though this is not my message, I just want to make sure that we're crystal clear on this. Can I read you a passage? This is out of the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 22, where it says, we are made right with God by not being angry, right? No. By placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, and then it says, um, we all, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's glorious standard, which is perfection, by the way, and that's what Jesus is trying to communicate. Jesus is trying to help a group of people who think they are perfect understand that they are not perfect. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins, right? Jesus is talking about the danger of anger and that there is potentially an eternal penalty, but now, now the Bible is saying, but Jesus paid that penalty. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God. How? This is so important. This verse is like, like the ground zero of our faith. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. He declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So just in case anybody is, has ever read this passage and it's ever caused you to be stressed, take a deep breath. The Bible says that when, when you trusted in Jesus Christ, you belong to him and nothing can ever change that. So now we can toggle. Can, can, we, can we toggle from the question of eternal destination to now let's talk about earthly uh, about uh, earthly success uh, or earthly effectiveness. Because if you belong to Jesus Christ, you know where your eternal destination is. Because the danger of anger doesn't end when you belong to Jesus. Now it just has the potential to affect your relationships on earth and your effectiveness on earth. It has the, the, the potential to cause you to not be able to experience transcendence. So let's talk about that, and then we're going to be done. Uh, and, and, and by the way, just as we get there, let's talk about this, this issue of attitude briefly. And we've dealt with it two weeks in a row, so I'm not going to get a lot into it. But Jesus wants people to understand a very basic principle about life. And this is something that as parents we should be communicating to our kids. As employers we should be communicating to our employees. This is just a basic truth about life that will change, that will change your world if you'll let it. And that is that actions are always just destinations that attitudes took us on the road to. I said that clumsily. An attitude is a road that takes us to an action which is a destination. So when Jesus talks about anger and murder and so I've heard some preachers say that Jesus is somehow equating anger to murder, that anger is the same thing as murder. Anger is not the same thing as murder. Jesus is saying they are on the same paint chip. Jesus is saying that, that, that anger is an attitude that will take you eventually to the destination of murder. Right? It's a road that will eventually lead you there, or at least murder is a stop on anger road. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Suppose I were to tell you that no matter what, I'm not going to Texas today. I am not going to Texas. Just know that. But I am going to get on I-35 and I'm going to drive south. Right? You say, well, Jonathan, you know, you drive south on I-35 long enough and you're going to be in Texas. And this is what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus is not trying to say anger and murder the same thing. He's saying you drive the anger road long enough and eventually you're going to find yourself in murder city because it is a destination on that road. And what Jesus is saying there is there is danger in anger. And that's why he's saying if a person were to bring his offering to the church and want to get close to God, there could be something holding him back. And he wants us to understand it so that we don't deal with this. By the way, speaking of this anger and murder thing, can you remember the first murder that ever happened in the human race? It was 
Cain and Abel, right? Genesis chapter 4. Do you remember what happened? Cain and Abel both offer sacrifices to God. And, and, and by the way, I, I believe that it wasn't that Cain didn't know the right thing and he somehow made a mistake and God came down on him too hard. I believe that God had given them instructions for how to sacrifice. I believe God had given his parents instructions and he'd probably watched that growing up. I just think that he wanted to interface with God on his own terms. I think he didn't like doing the animal sacrifice thing and he liked gardening and he wanted to you know, give God some nice lettuce and cabbage and tomatoes and stuff and that was gonna be his offering because he wanted to, be, he wanted to deal with God on his own terms, which by the way is the problem with our culture today. And, and God is God. He, he will be dealt with on his terms. And so the, the, God just did not accept Cain's sacrifice. But do you remember that God had a first-person conversation with Cain about it? Look at this. In, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, God says, Why are you so angry? Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door. Look at this. Eager to control you but you must subdue it and be its master. That is the definition of not being transcendent. God is saying if we do the wrong thing, we will have bargained to wrestle with something that we, that we otherwise would be able to skip over. When we choose to do the wrong thing, we end up finding ourselves grappling with something that if we would just do the right thing, God would allow us to skip over it. If we would follow God's directions, we could experience transcendence. So that's what God is trying to tell us. I want to read this verse from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, where the Bible says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Right? So if, you're, if somebody told you that, you know, um, somebody came up with a saying, don't, don't go to bed angry, just tell them, well, it was in the Bible first. And then it says, Give no opportunity to the devil. Now, what that word, what, what that means when it says, give no opportunity <clears throat> to the devil, um, if we go back to the original language, it literally means basically don't rent a room. To the devil. You see, if you're a believer, <clears throat> Satan cannot mess with your eternal destination, but if you rent him a room, he can certainly mess with your earthly effectiveness. He can certainly mess with your ability to move forward in life. And so, and so God is saying, don't, don't rent him a room. And how would, how would we do that? Because that's kind of an abstract thought. Well, we need to talk about what God is saying when he talks about being angry, because anger can mean a lot of things. But this word is very specific in the Greek. It's orgizo. It means a, a, a seething, growing, permanent rage towards somebody, a, a, a bitterness, a, a rooted bitterness towards somebody. It is literally anger that becomes part of your identity, that becomes part of who you are. And that's when Satan has now a room to, to move into because there is this space in your life in which God cannot live. God cannot live in the middle of that angry space. And so Satan comes in and sets up a room and God is saying, listen, if you want to move forward with me, you're probably going to have to give Satan an eviction notice because we can't both be in that same space. So there's a, a moment where we have to deal with that anger. But it's not just the emotion of being angry, and I want to distinguish that because we understand that anger by itself in the way that we would refer to it in our culture is just an emotion, and emotions are neither bad nor good, right? They're tools. It's what we do with them. So like, and this is the way I like to talk about it, and I've mentioned this before at New Spring, so forgive the redundancy, but an emotion is kind of like the warning light on the, on the dash in your car. It's neither good nor bad. It's just there to let you know that something needs to be addressed. So I have a, a, you know, a coolant temp sensor light that, that'll come on or oil pressure temp, or, or excuse me, oil pressure light that'll come on or check engine light or something like that that'll come on. Those lights are neither good nor bad. They just let me know that there's something under the hood that should be addressed. 
Just like uh, sadness is an emotion, it's a warning light, it lets us know that we're going through loss. If we didn't have sadness, we wouldn't understand that we're going through loss. Fear is an emotion, it lets us know that there's a threat. If we didn't experience fear, we might not understand that we're experiencing a threat. And anger is an emotion that relates to injustice. Right? So it's if something isn't fair. And you don't have to teach a two-year-old this. Right? If a two-year-old thinks things aren't fair, they get angry. Right? Because that's just the emotional response. So Jesus isn't talking about the response of, or the, the emotion of anger. He's talking about what happens when we let that anger begin to live within us and take up space and become part of who we are. And he says when that happens, it's very, very dangerous. So I want to just talk for a moment about, because, and I think this is where Jesus is making the connection, right? Jesus is saying, suppose there's this person, and there's this, this harbored anger, and there's this, this deep-seated anger between this and this other person, but yet this person comes to church potentially with the sincere desire to get close to God, but God says, wait a minute, you're on the no-fly list. I want, to, I want to talk about what Jesus says a person can do to get off the no-fly list, because believe me, I don't ever want to be there. I don't want to go to church and worship and try to get close to God and have God say, not yet, there's something you need to take care of. So let's just walk through. God gives three, Jesus gives three very simple instructions for what to do uh, if you find yourself there. And if you're taking notes, these are super simple, but we're going to walk through them really quickly. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, where Jesus gives instructions. He says, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Hey, all my um, English students here, first go and be reconciled. What's the subject there? It's an understood subject. You, right? You go be reconciled. Well, I don't know about that, Jonathan, because you don't know what kind of a jerk I'm dealing with here. Uh, and they always get away with it because I'm always the one who apologizes. I'm always the one who goes and says, let's, you know, let's make up, let's be friends, let's work this out. They're always the problem child. They're always the one who's trying to, you know, I do, dealing with couples coaching, I hear this a lot about people saying this about their spouse. Well, Jonathan, if you understood, I got that book, The Narcissistic Male, and my husband is that person to a T. I did the whole checklist in the back, and I can prove it. He's narcissistic. He's never apologized. He never says anything is his fault. He's never taken responsibility for anything a day in his life, and I'm always the person who's apologizing, and that's not fair. Or I have a husband who's saying, Jonathan, she will not get off her high horse. I mean, she lives there, and she never says she's sorry, and she doesn't think that she does anything wrong. She thinks that I'm the reason that we have every problem that we have, and it's always me who's going out and buying chocolates and flowers and showing up on the doorstep and begging to be let back in the house, and I just don't think it's fair for me to be the one who's always apologizing. Jonathan, if I'm the one who's always apologizing, what does that say about our relationship? And Jesus says, that's the wrong question. Jesus says, if I can forgive you for everything that you've done wrong, past, present, and future, and, and I can show you not just mercy, but grace and love, and yet somehow in the middle of my trying to show that to you, you feel like it's okay to hold a grudge against another person or not forgive them for what they've done. Jonathan, what does that say about our relationship? What is the Lord's Prayer say, forgive us our trespasses as what? As we forgive those who's, who've trespassed against us, right? And, and just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus will say, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's pretty direct language. Jesus is saying that we need to make sure that we are living out what he has done for us. By the way, husbands, this is a verse you want to keep track of. 
heads up, guys. The Bible says in 1 Peter 3, 7, in the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, and that word weaker means a slighter physical frame. She may be smaller than you are, but she has a big protector. She is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. There's some of us guys in this room that if we were going to achieve transcendence, we probably need to do some making up before we go to lunch. You know what I mean? Jesus is saying, and by the way, do you notice that Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done for us already? Jesus is saying, look, if, if, I, can, if I can be the one to make peace with you, you can be the one to make peace with others. Okay, here's, here's the second thing. He didn't just say, you go. He said, go first. Remember, he says, first, go and be reconciled. Uh, so for the, for the type A's, for the list makers uh, in this room, Jesus knew that there would be some people who would go, well, I have my list of priorities at my to-do list, and uh, I know that I need to deal with this relationship stuff, and I know I need to, to handle that, but it's kind of like more like towards the bottom because I have some bigger stuff that, that needs to get done first, and as soon as I get those things done, and I get those things checked off my list, then I will eventually get around to this, and Jesus is saying, nope, it doesn't work that way. This relationship thing is, should be first priority, so much so that Jesus is going to go to the point of saying, even if you're in church, it's, there's nothing that's a bigger priority than this relationship. He's saying, take your task list list, shove it down one peg, and then take that relationship thing and put it in slot number one. Do it first. Do it first. Why? Because it's keeping you from getting ahead. It's keeping you from experiencing transcendence. All the other things will be easier if you handle this thing first. He's saying do it first. By the way, this is Jesus' character. It's Jesus' character to to reconcile first. I have some passages. I'm just going to read them to you rapid fire. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Ephesians 2.15. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God. Colossians 1.20. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Colossians 1.22. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. It is God's nature when there is a break in the relationship to make it first priority to reach out to each party and to find a way to bring those parties together and to reconcile them. And God is saying, I'm not asking you to do anything that I didn't do first, but you should make it the first priority to go and reconcile. Does that make sense? God is saying, look, I'm just asking you to do what I've done for you. Now, quickly, and man, I'm going to be in overtime yet again. But quickly, I might be talking to somebody here this morning who would say, you know what, Jonathan, it's hard for me to hear what you're saying because I'm in a relationship with somebody who cannot be reconciled with. They, they seriously are just very difficult, and they, I've tried, Jonathan, I've tried to make peace with them, but they will not make peace with me. And so what are you saying? Is, is God mad at me, or am I, gonna have, am I not going to be able to get ahead in life because this person is refusing to, to make peace with me? No. Let me read this to you. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So God gives us two caveats, right? One is, if it's possible. If you are in a relationship with a rebellious person, it may not be possible. Remember the story of the, of the prodigal son who leaves the father, he goes off to the far off land? Reconciliation at that point is not possible because it's a rebellious person. So if you're in a relationship with a rebellious person, it's feasible that it may not be possible right now to reconcile with them. I totally get that. And the scripture is giving you an out here. But it also has just said, 
so far as it depends on you. So say it's not. Say it's not possible. Say you're in a relationship with somebody. You've tried all the creative ways that you can to reconcile. They will not have any of it. God's saying, okay, if that's the case, just make sure that so far as it depends on you, you've done all that you can. Basically, God's saying everything in your yard, make sure that you've done. You can't be in their yard, across their fence. They've got to do, you can't reconcile for them. They're going to have to make the decision to want to reconcile. Just make sure everything that is within your capacity to do, you have done. At that point, God sets you free from that, right? But think about it. Isn't that what God did for us? When Jesus came and died on the cross, he did everything that he could do. So far as it depended on him, he did everything that he could do. The only thing that God cannot do, God is an all-powerful God, but the only thing that God cannot do is say yes for you. If he could do that, then he would have created robots and not human beings. So, so God did everything shy of saying yes for you. That is all that remains. But it is God's nature to do everything within his power, and he's asking us to follow that example. All right, here's the last thing. So obviously he says that it needs to be you. You go, and then he says go first, and then the third thing is he says go quickly. This is in the next verse. Matthew 5.25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So the picture that Jesus is giving here is you have to understand, in that culture, if, if there was a dispute between you and somebody else, you were going to take them to court. It's not like it is now. You didn't have to file a lawsuit. You didn't have to get a court date. All you did was have to go to their house and grab them and drag them to the court with you. And when you finally got there to the court, both of you yelled at each other in front of the judge, and the judge decided who, who went to prison and who won, right? It was kind of a more simple thing at the time. So... He's saying, suppose that you have this dispute with this person, and this person comes to your house and wants to drag you off to court to, to get this resolved. And instead of you saying, look, let's not do that. Let's, let's figure this out. Let's reconcile. Let's get, it, let's get it dealt with between the two of us. You go, well, I'm thankful. Finally, we'll have a third party who will tell us who's right and who's wrong. Uh, it's about time I got to tell my side of the story. And the two of you end up going to the court, and Jesus said, here's what, here's what you don't understand. When you get to the court, then it's out of your hands. He's like, all the control, all the power that you would have had, you've just lost because you put it in somebody else's hands. He says, what, and what if the judge decides you're guilty? And then what if the judge hands you over to the bailiff and the bailiff puts you in jail and then you have to serve out a sentence? What if you could have resolved it before you ever even got in front of the judge? What if, your, what, what if your pride was keeping you from being able to say, hey, let's work this out and let's talk about this before it, it became out of your hands? Because there is a point in time which a conflict is still in your hands and you have the ability to do something about it. So often, if in the beginning stages of a conflict, if we would go to that other person and say, hey, I think I've been wrong here and Let's, let's try to work this out. So often that other person will also say, you know what, I think I've been wrong too. And there's opportunity for it to still stay within your grasp. But there is a moment where conflict grows out of control and grows out of your hands. And then you just have to live with the outcome. And Jesus is saying, you need to move quick. Move quick before you find yourself just having to live with the outcome. Ultimately, this is what I think Jesus is saying. And this is what I'll close with. Ultimately, I think Jesus is saying that he loves you and he loves the other person that you potentially might be in conflict with. And that in order for you to achieve transcendence and to experience God's best, there can't be this huge divide. And let me tell you how I would put that into practical terms. I have two little girls. I grew up in a house full of boys, so I feel very blessed to have little girls. I'm learning all kinds of new stuff. And uh, my, my little girls are perfect, and, um, but 
I want you to imagine for a moment that one of my, one of my little girls comes up to me and says, or not comes up to me, but comes up to her sister and says, you're worthless and I hate you and I don't want to spend time with you and I don't want to be around you and I wish you would just go jump off a cliff, right? And then that same little girl comes to me and says, hey, daddy, can I climb up on the couch with you and let's watch a movie and just spend some together time? Now, here's the thing. I still love both of those little girls. And the truth is, I would still like to spend time with my daughter. I'd like to sit on the couch and watch a movie with her, and I'd like to spend some together time with her. But you know what I'm going to tell her? First, you need to go talk to your sister, and you need to apologize for what you said, and you need to get things right. And then, yeah, absolutely, let's, let's hang out. Let's, let's do stuff. Let's spend time together. And I think that's what Jesus is ultimately saying. I think he's ultimately saying, I love you, and I love the other person. Maybe they're narcissistic. God loves them anyway. Maybe they're a problem child. God loves them anyway. Maybe they just like to be difficult. Who knows? God loves them anyway. And God is saying it, there can't be this antagonism there and still be liftoff. If you really want to experience God's best, God is saying it can't just be this relationship. It also has to be this relationship as well. And we can do that not because of, not, not because of anything within us, but because God has given us this grace and mercy and love. And somehow we can let that overflow onto that other person. And then we can really get off the no-fly list and experience takeoff. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love. And Father, thank you for the fact that you've given us ways of, of understanding that even when we are angry, we can reach out to you and we can deal with that anger. Um, and that reconciliation is something you've taught us how to do. You don't just tell us to do it, you've shown us. And Father, I pray that for each of us in this room, if there is a relationship that needs mending, you would remind us of that today. Bring it to mind and allow us to reach out to that person and to reconcile that while there's time. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for letting me go into overtime.